Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy whatever holidays you celebrate, and welcome to this episode of the Football and More podcast, the last episode of 2016. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. Of course, this podcast was formerly the Hammer Time podcast. We switched to Football and More, but you can still follow us on the same links on iTunes and on SoundCloud, and this is a really special episode. I'm really excited how we're ending this year. Uh, I've been very lucky to be able to talk to multiple employees of NFL.com, the NFL Network, all that sort of jazz. And we started off small. We started with Matt Harmon, a nice little single, base it up the middle. Uh, then we got Alex Gelhar, another editor at the NFL.com, got to double. I got the face of NFL now, Patrick Clavon, earlier this year. And I recommend that you listen to all those episodes because uh, they all touched on very different things and they're all really interesting. But I'm really happy to be joined by objectively, at least in 2016, the best fantasy player at NFL.com or NFL Network. Um, this is the home run guy I wanted. Marcus Grant, how are you doing today? Man, that's a that's a hell of an introduction. Now I have something to live up to. Not, not only do I, do I follow Harmon and Gelhar and Claybon, but I am also the, the year-end finale. That, that, this is a lot to live up to, Ethan. Well, I mean, when I came to the NFL Network in June... I felt a little bit bad because Gelhar knew I was coming and Clavon knew I was coming, but I didn't really know you that well yet. And then right. you were just sitting at your desk and I was like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. And then immediately, of course, we became best friends like soon after that. But I wanted to make sure that you got on too because uh, you do really good work and clearly you're good at what you do if you're able to win in such a competitive league. Can you maybe just to start give us insight into that team that won the NFL league? You know, my, my strategy this year was just to pick really good players. It worked out. Uh, I was big on David Johnson, so I made sure to grab him in the first round. I was drafting David Johnson wherever I could. Um, if it was number one overall, then so be it. Uh, and it just so worked out that things fell into place. I mean, I was able to get Aaron Rodgers uh, fairly early. I think it was round four or five I got Aaron Rodgers. I got Jordy Nelson fairly early, and obviously he turned out to be big. Um you know, there were some guys that exceeded my expectations. I thought Mike Evans would be good. I didn't think he would be as good as he was this year. I thought Melvin Gordon could have a nice rebound from his rookie season. Certainly didn't think he would do uh, what he was able to do this year. And it's just being fortunate on the waiver wire. I mean, being able to get guys like Dontrell Inman midway through the year helped. Uh, you know, it, it helped me in places where, you know, where I was weak, where, you know, John Brown Ended up not turning out to be the guy I thought he would be this year, but I was able to find other guys off the waiver wire, whether it was Inman or Sterling Shepard or uh, you know guys like that that just really helped me out. So you know I, I do credit some of the preseason work I did and just studying guys to help. But I, I mean you know this there's there's an element of luck that goes into this, and, and certainly in some cases I was able to get lucky with guys that like I said it just exceeded my expectations. And it sounds like you had to quit the squad, although John Brown, I think we can all just blame Matt Harmon for that, because <laughs> I fell for that too in my home league. In my home league, I had the number one overall pick in a 14-person league, I want to say. And I started with Antonio Brown, he was my first pick. And then after that, I went Doug Martin, which it didn't end up being great, but that's an injury thing, and I was able to pick up Jordan Howard in the third to last round, so that was fine. But And T.Y. Hilton. But then rounds four and five, I went Tyler Lockett and John Brown, and that just destroyed me. I was able to compensate because Michael Thomas luckily stepped it up a little bit, but the two reception reception guys, um, even though Matt does amazing work on that, did not come through this year, which was a shame. Uh, how did other people do in your league? Like, who came in second? Who came in last? Uh, you know what? Uh, Maurice Jones-Drew ended up being second. He was the guy I beat in the championship to, uh, to win the title. Um, you know, it, it was funny. Adam Rank, who's normally very good in this league, started out slowly, but actually made a run. Uh, kind of got close to the playoffs. Aaron Coscarelli uh, was in the playoffs as well. Matt Money Smith, who always finds a way to, to put together a good team, he he squeaked into the playoffs. Uh, it was a down year for Michael Fabiano. He ended up tied for last in the league along with Akbar Bajaviamila. So this was not a great Fab year fantasy wise. He he. He went out and he pinned his hopes early on, on Todd Gurley in that league, and I think we all know kind of how that turned out for a lot of folks. Yeah, Gurley's definitely someone who's been really disappointing. Um, are there any other guys this year who, to you, you just expected them to take the leap and they didn't end up doing it? Um, well, the one, and you know, I can I can say this now because my fantasy team ended up winning, but I really 
did believe this summer that maybe we would see Tavon Austin finally make the leap. And uh, that was what I, I tried to not talk about too much during the year when it didn't really happen because it, it was sort of frustrating and amazing all at the same time to watch a guy get so many targets and get so many opportunities and do so little with it. Um, so that was kind of frustrating. He was probably the the most egregious one. I also thought Randall Cobb was going to bounce back and, and have another huge year. I think I wrote something to the effect of, if Randall Cobb is not a top 10 receiver at the end of the year, then something went horribly wrong. Well, obviously something went horribly wrong because Randall Cobb was not anywhere near the top 10 this year. Yeah, I, I thought Tyler Lockett was going to be a star, and I was wrong about that. Even though Doug Baldwin was, all the metrics said that Doug Baldwin was better, but you looked at the way that Tyler Lockett was winning on a consistent basis, you thought he was going to be able to that next step, and he really wasn't able to do that. I also thought Paul Perkins by year's end was going to be a top 15 running back. Um, and he did get his chance, but a little bit too late for me, which was very, very annoying. And then <laughs> from the tight end standpoint, I thought Clive Walford or Jared Cook were going to step up, and neither of them did. And that was a little bit disappointing because I was at the Senior Bowl a couple of years ago, and I saw Clive Walford play, and he was the best player at the Senior Bowl. In my opinion, I thought he was better than Danny Shelton that year, especially considering what he was doing on a routine basis. So I hope they begin to use him a little bit more because I think he could be a really nice weapon for Oakland down the road or wherever they no, may I, go. I, I agree with you. And I was I was kind of big on, on Clive Walford, kind of as more of a deep sleeper, but I thought he could have a really nice year. I also kind of have this sort of love-hate relationship with Raiders tight ends because I keep trying to predict them that they never quite work out. I mean, I was... I was driving the Brandon Myers bus a few years back, and that never quite panned out. Then I tried to get on board with Michael Rivera in the past, and that never quite panned out. And this year, I was I was very hesitant, but I still was like trying to give a thumbs up to Clive Walford, and, and obviously we see that that was just underwhelming. I'm also with you on Jared Cook. I thought Jared Cook was going to really blow up this year. I kept saying that um he was the tight end the Packers had been looking for ever since Jermichael Finley left. And I think we had that one really good Jared Cook game, and we got all excited. We thought, this is it. This is where it starts. And then that was kind of the last we heard from him this year. Switching to the other side, uh, who are some players who really jumped out to you as being not just very good players, but sustainably good players? Guys who you think could be undervalued next year and end up having pretty good results? Um... You know, I don't know if he's going to be undervalued next year, but the first name I thought about was Michael Thomas um, mm -hmm. in New Orleans. And I know that the comparison initially was that he would kind of be the new Marcus Colston. And I'm not sure that that's 100% fair. Obviously, both of them, uh, you know, Marcus Colston was productive for a long time, and Michael Thomas had a very good year. But I think he really established himself as a guy that Drew Brees trusts in that offense, and I think that's going to continue, certainly as long as Brees is there. You're going to see uh, Michael Thomas get a lot of targets because he's, he's kind of, you know, he's got the big body. He can he can go downfield when they need him to, but he can also kind of run those intermediate routes and be very productive uh, in that respect. Um, you know, I still think, as for as good a season as he has, I think Carlos Hyde is very underrated, and I'm, I'm sorry to see his season end the way it did with an injury, but... In a world where we're always trying to find running backs, um, he was that guy that seemed sort of immune to game script. I mean, when the Niners were down big, which has been often this year, they still found ways to get him the football. And he was very productive. I mean, he was that guy that you could slot into your RB2 spot every single week and generally feel okay that you were going to get decent production. So I, I hope that he gets back healthy next year. I hope the Niner offense gets a little bit better next year. One, because I grew up as a Niners fan, but also because it would certainly help Hyde's value. So I, I think he's a guy that, um, you know, will probably be, will come off the board probably in like the second round, maybe the third round if you're lucky. But I think he's going to give you value above what you expected out of him when you drafted him. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree with you on both of those guys. My comparison for Thomas coming out of school was Miles Austin, the former Dallas receiver, because I thought that they played similarly in a vertical sense and they could both make plays down the field. But also after the catch, Thomas is so, so good. I think he's a really underrated player. Um, and with Brandon Cooks, like that team is scary. I don't know if Peyton's going to be there much longer because he's been attached to the LA job. He's been attached to some other jobs. Um, but yeah, I really, really like 
Michael Thomas. Carlos Hyde, I agree with you on. Um, I actually tried to rebuild the Niners in Madden, and I w- was able to – basically what ended up happening is because I just needed a fastback in Madden. I signed Ronnie Hillman, who has 95 speed, and I drafted this guy in, like, the sixth round of my draft, who has 99 speed. And I traded Carlos Hyde for, like, four draft picks um, because, I mean, he's a great player and he's totally underutilized, but I do wonder what's going to happen in San Francisco. I, I kind of wonder if Chip is going to be there next year because even though I would hope that he gets some time to actually put a roster together because their cupboard was so bare, uh, getting the number two pick in the draft is not going to help. And I'm not sure who he's going to take because I don't think Trubisky's his kind of quarterback and I don't think he values quarterback high enough to take it at two if it's not an elite player. Um, but I don't think they're going to get Miles Garrett either. So that's going to be an interesting situation to watch. A couple other sleepers who I really like, and one of them has just really been coming on the scene lately, and that's Jalen Richard from Oakland. I think he's going to take Latavius Murray's job in the near future. Uh, he's so talented. He's really good in tight spaces. He breaks a lot of tackles. He makes plays in the passing game. He does everything you need a running back to do. And my second sleeper is someone who I kind of want to segue on, talking about the Packers. Is Ty Montgomery going to be a full-time running back next year? Because if he is, I think he could be really, really good. I do think he's going to be a full-time running back next year. Um, The question is, will he get a shot to be the lead running back there, or are the Packers going to try to do something to bolster that position? I mean, I think think he's safe through the free agent period, just because traditionally – Green Bay is not very active when it comes to signing free agents. That's just not the way they do things. But will they go out and spend a relatively high draft pick on a young running back and bring somebody in to have competition? I mean, I think what we saw at a time Montgomery is certainly incredibly encouraging. And it makes you wonder why they were trying to shoehorn him in as a wide receiver for the last year or so. When obviously he's really talented running the football there. When it's it has became it has become a position of need because of the injury, because Eddie Lacy got hurt, because, you know, Kristen Michael could never quite figure it out in the, the short time he was there. So uh, he's going to be one of the biggest storylines of the offseason, whether or not he becomes a full-time running back. But what we saw out of him near the end of the year was certainly very encouraging. And, I mean, you know, that we are all kind of thirsty for more talented, productive running backs because it has become a position of scarcity in fantasy. I think this also speaks to your philosophy, and I'd, I'd love to hear some more input on this, because I know that there's a lot of different warring fantasy philosophies right now. Some subscribe to zero running backs, saying that you sh- really shouldn't draft running backs until later, or at all, because running back production is very negligible, and you can find some later in the draft or on free agency. There are many who are zero QB. I know there are people who even are zero wide receiver, and you look at guys like Tyrell Williams and... Adam Thielen lighting it up this year, and you wonder if there's some merit to that. What is your philosophy when you uh, are drafting teams? Um, this may sound like a cop out, but my I, I always kind of go with the sort of the amoeba strategy of just kind of be flexible because you can't really dictate a lot of times, how the draft's going to fall. I mean, I think if you're in leagues where you've been there for a while and you kind of know everybody's tendencies, maybe you have an idea. But if I'm near the top of my draft, um, I want, I do want one of those diehard, game-changing, elite-type running backs. I mean, because, sure, you can go zero RB, but there's really no substitute for what you got week in, week out out of David Johnson, Ezekiel Elliott, Le'Veon Bell. There was just no way to replace that kind of production on a weekly basis. But if you find yourself in the middle or later uh, you know, spots in your draft, um, I'm totally on board with, with going with those wide receivers early, those Odell Beckhams, Antonio Browns that you know are going to give you solid production every single week, and then trying to build from there. I, I think the problem sometimes when we talk about draft strategies is this idea that there is one way to do it, that you were either zero RB or you're weight on a quarterback or you're not going for wide receivers. Um, and I think it it kind of constricts everybody's thinking and it, and it kind of leads you to doing things and maybe reaching for players that you wouldn't otherwise. I think, you know, if you can, if you can find ways to just be flexible and be ready for whatever comes, then I think you can build a better team that way. And it's why I, I certainly advocate to people doing multiple mock drafts where you can. I mean, and, and you know, obviously selfishly, we'd like you to do it on NFL.com, but there are plenty of sites out there that allow you to do mock drafts all off season long. And I think it kind of helps you, 
understand where players are going off the board and, and what you might be able to expect from your draft, uh, and then how to adjust accordingly. I think I just think being locked into one thing really will do you more harm than good. I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, you mentioned some big names, Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, Odell Beckham Jr. If you had an MVP ballot, which I don't know if you do, but if you did, um, <laughs> who would you have as your top three right now? Um, well, I don't. Uh, I, I wish I did, because that would be fun. Um, I I think you're looking at – I know the, the trendy idea, the trendy pick is Tom Brady, um, but I think, I think Matt Ryan should be there. Um, until, you know, maybe the last week or two, I would have said Derek Carr. Um, and I still think David Johnson deserves a look because I think those three guys mean so much to their respective teams. And I know that for David Johnson, the argument's going to be, well, the Cardinals aren't winning. They're not making the playoffs. What's the big deal? But we were sitting around in the office one day and trying to figure out how many games would the Cardinals have actually won were it not for David Johnson this year? And we came up with maybe one or two. I mean, they, they would be a really bad offensive team without him. I think Matt Ryan, as kind of the trigger man in what has been a just really potent Falcons offense, deserves a lot of credit. And, and I would have said that uh, Derek Carr, uh, like I said, until you know, recently, because I think what he means – emotionally to that Raiders team says a lot. And I think, I think his MVP moment was a few weeks ago when he, um, his finger, he left the game and then he came back. And I think just emotionally seeing him back on the field did a lot for that Raiders team. So I thought he deserved a look. Um, I, I think, yeah, again, okay, those are my three. I think when it's all said and done, I think Tom Brady's going to win it and that's fine. I don't have any beef with that, but I think, with the Patriots getting off to a great start, being three and one at the start of the year without him. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of puts a little bit of a damper on his MVP candidacy for me. I understand that point about the three and one thing, but I think people may have just underrated how good Garoppolo was because Garoppolo has now spent the past few years working in the system. They prepared him for those games. Those teams, Miami actually ended up being very good but their defense at that time wasn't great. But Garoppolo was picking them apart like nothing. And he didn't have Gronk in those games either. And Arizona, the defense ended up being slightly worse than expected. But Garoppolo still did more than enough to win that game. So I think people sort of want to discount Brady's candidacy uh, by saying Garoppolo's bad. And I don't think he's that bad. And, I mean, I'm a little biased. But I think Brady should be the MVP. I think I would not be mad with Ryan winning it either. He'd be my number two. I think the only difference is that when you look at the throws that they've made, and PFF has charted this as well, um, I just think that Brady has had a slightly harder degree of difficulty because he doesn't have a Julio Jones on offense, even though, yes, he has Gronk. Yes, he has Martellus Bennett. Gronk's been injured for most of the year, and even when he wasn't injured, he really got a majority of his production in about two or three games. So I'm just a little bit more on the Brady side of the fence there. I think Odell Beckham is my number three right now, and if he won MVP, I wouldn't be mad at all because Eli Manning has not been that good this year, and... Odell Beckham Jr. is by far the best player on that team. There are certain oh, easily, points, yeah. You know, he's he's easily the best player on that team. And I, I was I said it on Twitter, and I still kind of joke about it that whenever I watch the Giants play and Eli throws it to not Odell Beckham, I wonder why he didn't throw it to Odell Beckham. I mean, no matter how many times they throw it to him, I feel like they don't throw it to him enough. So I I can completely understand that argument. I haven't seen a player as dynamic after the catch as Odell Beckham since maybe Randy Moss. And that was young Randy Moss. That wasn't even, like, Randy Moss in New England. He was just going on vertical rounds in New England. Uh, back in the day, Randy Moss was taking screen passes for touchdowns at Marshall in Minnesota. I mean, what Odell does for that offense is that he forces you to look at him versus every other player, and it forces them to um, have to scheme specifically for him. And he's still making plays on every single slant route and every single deep route. The Giants have no running game. They have a very inconsistent quarterback. Their offensive line is mediocre at best, especially with Eric Flowers playing offensive tackle. And still, I mean, this team is just winning games, and the defense has been playing really well. But I think Odell, if people threw him votes in that three MVP spot, if people threw him votes in that number one MVP spot, I wouldn't be mad. And, I mean, I think overall this has been a bit of a weird year. 
there really hasn't been one dominating performance, and I'd be fine with Matt Ryan winning, to be honest. I think that would probably be a, a very fair pick, especially since he played every game this year and Brady didn't. But I don't know. Odell is someone who I think, um, if the odds are good on him, he might be someone I'd put a little bit of money on because I I could see him getting that MVP nod. Maybe the team's not quite good enough, but it's a weird year. Anything can happen. I do find it interesting that we did not mention Zeke or Dak. Um, so what do you think about how their relationship has functioned in Dallas? I think it's I think it's incredible. Um, and, and watching that Monday night game against the Lions and kind of hearing Sean McDonough and John Gruden talk about Zeke and Dak, in my head, I'm already envisioning the 30 for 30 about their combined rookie years, you know, and just the, you know, what if I told you two rookies can revive America's team and, you know, lead them to glory? Because I think, I think what we have seen out of them has been really special. I mean, that they've taken this team that in the past has been close. I mean, even when Tony Romo was there and all those guys at Dez and Jason Witten and those guys around them, they were, you know, kind of competitive, but for some reason, this, this duo has kind of taken them over the top, and it's not all of them. You know, I, I can't say that it's all of them. The offensive line certainly is a big part of it. Defensively, they have been good when they needed to be, especially down the stretch. But there's there's been kind of an energy that has come from Dak and from Zeke that I think has been infectious. And I think you, you get that sense when you hear their teammates talk about it, when you hear Des Bryant talk about that, when you hear Jason Garrett or Jerry Jones kind of talk about these two you get the feeling that they have sort of revitalized this organization. Um, and, you know, it, it's been fun to watch them. The Cowboys are a lot of fun to watch, whether you love them or hate them. Uh, I mean, I guess if you hate the Cowboys, you're kind of sick to your stomach realizing that this duo could be around for a long time and potentially causing problems for a long time. But if you're just kind of an impartial observer or just a lover of good football, the Dallas Cowboys have just been a lot of fun to watch this year, and those two are very much in the center of it. As someone who was, how old was I in 2001? I was 10. Wow. Uh, as someone who was 10 <laughs> years old in 2001, I remember watching Tom Brady that rookie year. I remember the conversation that was surrounding Tom Brady that rookie year. And people forget that Drew Bledsoe had led that team to a Super Bowl before. And uh, he, that was supposed to be his job when he got back. It was supposed to go to Bledsoe. Brady just wouldn't give it up. And there was a, a bit of a hubbub in the media to have Brady give up that job. And you look at it statistically, you look at the tape. Uh, granted, I think that the teams are very different, the 2001 Patriots and the 2016 Cowboys. Brady had a better defense, in my opinion. Brady had worse weapons, in my opinion, and probably had to do a little bit more on offense than Dak has to do, considering he does have some better weapons. I think Dak still is playing better now than Brady was playing in 2001. I would trust Dak um, to move forward. And I think that Romo could have his moment. We could see Dak get banged up in a playoff game. It's cold. Maybe something happens. Maybe Roma gets to come in, sort of like what Bledsoe did against Pittsburgh in 2001. But I really do believe that sometimes when you see something special, you have to say this is special. And with Dak, we haven't seen this before. And we have a very large amount of rookie quarterbacks that we can compare Dak to. We have Carson Wentz, who's in a very similar system in Philadelphia. We have Jared Goff, who didn't know his playbook and didn't know how to make line calls in college. We have Jacoby Brissett, who totally faltered in the game against Buffalo, um, which wasn't totally his fault, but he still like couldn't hold a candle to Dak. We've had Cody Kessler. We've had multiple other rookie quarterbacks. Trevon Boykins played this year. Dak is special, and while I don't think he's the MVP, I do think that this is the kind of player who in years to come, we might see him on that special path, and I'm very excited to watch what happens next. I can't believe we all missed on him, too, and I can't believe he slipped, but it's <laughs> it's crazy because you look back at the college tape, and this has made me sort of reevaluate how I look at quarterbacks. In college, Dak was by far the best player on his team. I think part of the reason why I misevaluated him is because I, along with many others, thought that his wide receivers, Duranya Wilson and Fred Ross, were slightly better than they were, but I think that with Dak, like, he just made smart decisions as often as possible. And there were a couple of games where he was shaky. I remember his junior year Alabama game. Um, he made some terrible throws against a really, really good defense, and that turned me off a little bit. But 
he just kept improving, and we don't know what happens off the field, but apparently he's a really intelligent person, and now he's at the point where his team has the one seed in the NFC playoffs, and they, um, according to DVOA, are the best team in football right now. So I am excited. I, I never hated the Cowboys, but I don't think they were America's team for the past 15 years after New England took over. <laughs> and I think that now they have a chance of taking that back. So we'll see about that. Uh, no, I, I 100% agree. I think, I think you hit on a really interesting point about what we saw or what we tried to evaluate with Dak. And, and I think you, know, you saying you know, he had a bad game against Alabama and he, he made some bad throws against a good defense. And I think I feel like we over we overanalyze the bad things. And maybe it's because when it comes to you know, doing player evaluations and doing scouting, um, I think the default is to try to pick a guy apart, try to see what's wrong with a guy. Um, as opposed to seeing what he does well. And so when when you have a player that goes out and has a bad game, especially if that bad game comes against kind of higher level competition, then I think I think we have a tendency to look and say, okay, well, maybe this guy isn't as good as we thought and, and sort of ignore the rest of his body of work. And I think, you know, I, I think nothing speaks to how good Dak Prescott is and was than to go back and look at what Mississippi State was after he left and see how bad that team was and how far that program fell in such a short amount of time, I think that goes a long way towards speaking to how good Dak is and to how much he meant to that program. And so, you know, hopefully we can take that lesson and apply it to this year when we're scouting guys, but I think we all know better and we're still going to make some of the same mistakes on guys this year. And there's going to be somebody that this time next year we're going to be talking about and saying, man, I can't believe we whiffed on that guy as badly as we did. Oh, I'm already getting prepared for the uh, for the flame wars I'm going to have to endure on Twitter. I, because I have my quarterback takes for the most part. I actually, I think it's an interesting year for quarterbacks. And I don't know if you saw this, but um, friend of the show and host of Setting the Edge podcast, the podcast that I named, by the way, um, with Justice Muscata, Ch- Charles McDonald, uh, spoke last night about a perception he sees where um, – quarterbacks who are black like Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Kaiser, and Pat Mahomes are kind of getting discounted this year. And meanwhile, last year we had like Jared Goff and Carson Wentz who were really just as flawed as prospects, and they were sort of elevated to the first round. I mean, you didn't hear people say last year that it was the worst quarterback class ever. You didn't hear people say last year that there's no quarterback worth taking the first round. I think now we're seeing that happen with a quarterback in this class, but it's Trubisky. Uh, who doesn't have any track record, and honestly, I've watched him. I don't think he's that good yet. Um, he just he reminds me a lot of Jared Goff, funnily enough. But I think also part of the thing with picking up our quarterbacks, and I've definitely tried to be more open-minded in my evaluation of quarterbacks and trying to look for positive skills rather than negatives, is that there are certain quarterbacks who inherently are going to be picked apart more than others. And I'm trying to not sort of make the same blanket criticisms, but instead uh, be a little bit more constructive and a little bit more perceptive. For example, with Carson Wentz, who's someone who I've been pretty vocal about that uh, while I don't love him, um, I I do think that he's shown some positive signs this year. Uh, But he's someone who every time at North Dakota State, you saw the athleticism, you saw the arm at a face value level, the guy was definitely a top three pick. But he also... Anytime he got hit the entire rest of the game, he was scared of pressure. He got that first hit, and then he would just fold up in every single ensuing snap. And the same thing happened to Blake Bortles, by the way. And a lot of these guys with mechanical issues, um, the issue isn't going to change once they get into the heat of the moment. Players are who they are. You can work on mechanics for as long as possible, but unless you're a special mind or you have those down to a science... um, Blake Bortles is going to go back to his funky windup once he gets hit three or four times against the Titans. That's just how it's going to work. So I think that overall, in my evaluating, I'm trying to look at players with a little bit more of a tendency-oriented eye rather than being hypercritical or just hyper-top level. Because sometimes you can get lost if a guy has a strong arm or has good feet, and other times you can get lost if a guy played an offense where he just went from shotgun the entire time. But the most important thing is just um, seeing if there's any like little traits that you think are really good or really bad. 
and then honing in on those and, and thinking about how those relate to the next level. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think part of it is that, you know, as a, I think the scouting community in some instances is still sort of stuck when it comes to quarterback on this mindset of, you know, you want a big, tall guy who can stand tall in the pocket, have a good pocket presence and have a big, strong arm. And I think, you know, I think there's still this idea that you have to look or perform like Tom Brady or Carson Palmer. I mean, guys who aren't known for their mobility, but certainly can sling the football. But I think, you know, I don't know that the NFL is that same league anymore where the quarterback necessarily has to adapt to the system he's in. I think we've started to see more coaches begin to build their offenses around their quarterbacks. I mean, I think a guy, for instance, like Marcus Mariota is a really good example of that. They brought him in in Tennessee, and I think what we saw from him this year with Mike Malarkey uh, in that smash, exotic smash-mouth offense really kind of played to a lot of his strengths there. We saw him get out of the pocket. We saw him move around, make a lot of very safe, high-percentage throws that turned into bigger plays. Um, I don't know that he's that guy if they try to shoehorn him into an offense where he's got to be under center and he's got to take a five-step drop and read the field. And I think that's fine. I mean, I think at some point it's just smart to – build with what you have at the quarterback position and let everybody else kind of work around that. And and so I think that has sort of changed, or at least it should change, the way we go about scouting QBs now. So when you have a guy like Deshaun Kaiser, um, you know, like Deshaun Watson, um, that, that you, you can look at their strengths individually and kind of figure out, okay, where does this guy fit in the NFL? How would you build an offense around him? How would you make things uh, so that he can be successful? Maybe not in, you know, year one, but at least get him comfortable enough that he can be successful down the road. Because I think, you know, we can't expect everybody to rock, to walk in and have an Andrew Luck RG3 type rookie year. You're going to have a lot more quarterbacks who have a Carson Wentz kind of rookie year where they do some good things and they do some bad things. Um, but it's about putting them in a position where long term they can be successful. And I think that starts with being able to scout them effectively and understand how they fit. I think that's very true. And a couple of Observations I've made with quarterbacks this year. Um, one is Mitch Trubisky, who, I mean, I think he definitely has tools and he has he makes some nice passes. Um, but every time he played in a cold weather game or a game of precipitation, he just didn't play very well. And that's something that I noticed with a couple of players. Um, certain players play worse in the cold. Demarius Thomas is a really good example of that. I know whenever the Patriots played him in the snow... Um, he would have some major issues holding on to the ball, at least in the games that I've watched of him. Um, someone on the opposite end of that spectrum is Cephal Lefau from Colorado, who was inconsistent and had an awful Pac-10, or Pac-12, I guess, championship game against um, Washington. But he tended to play better when it was a little bit more inclement. And Josh Dobbs from Tennessee is someone else who... Again, very inconsistent, and I'm not saying that he's the same quarterback as Dak Prescott, so please don't put words in my mouth, but (laughs) he ran a very similar offense to Dak Prescott at Mississippi State, made all the calls at the line of scrimmage, made smart decisions on a routine basis, and maybe that's the kind of quarterback that we can mold now. You put him in a system like with Dak, with a good support system, and maybe that's the kind of player who a couple of years ago we would sort of cast aside and now we can um, get some production out of. So those are some guys that I think are interesting. I want to get your thought on a couple of more super quick NFL things, um, which really stems from the fact that the Ryans were fired today. Um, First, Tyrod Taylor. What are your thoughts about that quarterback situation, and specifically about whether or not you think Tyrod Taylor um, merits some of the criticism that he's gotten? Um, I mean, I think he, he merits some of the criticism. I mean, I think, you know, there are times that he has been inconsistent this year, that, that his, you know, his accuracy at times has struggled. Um, and, and there have been times when the Bills have not moved the football effectively. I, I don't know that it's all on him. I mean, it's hard when your primary receiver and Sammy Watkins is never completely healthy. Um, you know, I, there have been times when you know, he's working without without Watkins, he's working without LaShawn McCoy, and that's a big deal in that offense. But still, I mean, we're talking about a team that was top 10 in terms of offensive production, in terms of scoring, so they were able to move the ball up and down the field. They were able to put points on the board, and I, I think 
too much is being put on Tyrod in terms of blame there. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't understand what it is the Bills are doing at quarterback. I don't understand why it is they've seems to have been so hesitant to make a commitment to Tyrod. You know, if they want him to be, if, if what they're looking for is a top five elite quarterback, he's not going to be that. And I think, you know, I think everybody kind of understands that, but that's fine. I, I also don't know who they think they're going to find that's going to be a better option than Tyrod Taylor right now. I mean, the free agent market is looking pretty slim. I mean, I, I you know, unless they feel like they can swing a deal for, for Tony Romo, and I don't even know that that's a great fit for that offense. Um, there aren't a lot, or there aren't going to be a lot of great free agent options at the quarterback position. Um, you know, maybe there's somebody they have their eye on potentially in the draft, but yeah, as we just talked, you know, just a little while ago, um, you know, it, it at, least, at least is not getting a lot of hype as being a great quarterback class. So maybe there's somebody they can draft and groom, but at the same time, you're also wasting the primes of some of your key offensive players. So I haven't figured out why it is the Bills have not committed to him. Uh, I was joking with Matt Harmon today that it'll be really great when Tyrod goes down to Jacksonville and helps resurrect Allen Robinson's career. Um, I, I'm just I'm really scratching my head as to how Doug Whaley is going to proceed from the quarterback spot going forward. Yeah, I think Tyrod will be fun in Los Angeles too. I think that you could do some really cool stuff with um, Tavon and with Brian Quick going vertical. Kenny Britt still there. Uh, and Tyrod, so I think that could be an interesting situation too. But going back to Buffalo, I mean, they drafted Cardell Jones round four, and there are people who think Cardell Jones could be a good quarterback in the NFL. Do you think he's going to get a shot, or do you think it's just one of those situations where the the circumstances are never going to line up perfectly? I mean, if there's ever a week for him to get a shot, you'd think it would be this week. I mean, if they're not going to play Tyrod Taylor... Why not play Cardale Jones, except, you know, the story comes out that they're going to go with E.J. Manuel this week, and, and that uh, is equally confounding to me. Um, so, I, you know, I, I would at least like to see Cardale get an opportunity, uh, you know, see what he did in college at Ohio State, makes him an intriguing prospect. Uh, but for whatever reason, again, the Bills just seem to have this all turned around. So, yeah, knowing Bills fans, I think they're sort of uh, – grudgingly waiting for the day that Cardale Jones signs a contract, a free agent deal somewhere else, and then turns into a really good quarterback for another team because the Bills just can't figure out how to develop their own guys. Yeah, I think secretly the Bills are trying to throw this game so the Jets get a worse draft pick. But <laughs> we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. And maybe the Jets keep Todd Bowles as well. Although, I'm not sure Todd Bowles should be fired, but that's a whole other conversation. Let's go to the more section. So... Um, you were actually on Matt Harmon's Backyard Bander podcast over the summer, and on it you talked about how you got your gig at the NFL Network. Uh, I was wondering if you could repeat that just for anyone who might not know the story. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I sort of ended up here by accident. Uh, I had been doing radio for a long time, uh, probably the better part of 10 years, and um, was working in Los Angeles for uh, Sporting News Radio, their national network, until the company sold and moved to Houston. And um, I love Los Angeles, and I wasn't really interested in moving to Houston. No offense to anybody out there. I just I love. I'm from California, so I didn't really want to leave home. Um, and I, you know, I was working freelance, uh, just writing wherever I could, trying to just make a little extra cash. And someone suggested that I apply for jobs at the NFL because they're always looking for people. Um, I honestly applied for about five or six jobs off the website, kind of forgot about it because nobody called me for months on end. And then uh, out of the blue one day, um, during the NFL lockout, mind you, this was the summer of the lockout, and I got a call from Michael Fabiano who asked me if I was interested in in writing fantasy football. And honestly, to that point, I had never even thought about doing it as a career. I mean, I I played, certainly I'd been playing for a while with friends and the like, had never thought about it as a career, but... Um, he asked me if I wanted to write about it. I said, does it pay? He said, yes. I said, you know, when's the interview? And, uh, lo and behold, although actually the fun part about it is, um, I've told Fabs this, and this isn't really like a secret or anything, but the night before the interview, um, I went on .com and I read about a week's worth of his columns and I pretty much just, uh, regurgitated a lot of his information back to him and it worked out. 
you know, so here we are five years later, and uh, here I am working at the NFL and enjoying my time. Yeah, suck up to the interviewer. That's that's how to go. Um, <laughs> and also, I think it's awesome that you did radio. I am personally a radio evangelist. I think that if you're in college and you want to do journalism, if you want to write, that's cool, but I think you should do broadcast as well because I don't know what your experience is, but... I feel like working at a radio station and I managed a news and sports department there and it was commercial. So I got to like go to any Boston sporting event I want, which was really, really great. Um, but I found it so helpful for my development as not only um, a writer and a journalist, but also as someone who has to present things. It just gives you the knowledge of how to improvise and think on your feet and really be able to connect to people and make your point known in a clear way. And I think radio is very, very good for that. I don't know if you have the same experience though. No, absolutely. And I think, I think you really hit on something key with that ability to kind of think on your feet and to be able to present and to speak and, and present your ideas um, in a concise manner. Uh, I, I loved radio because it sort of had the immediacy of the internet, but it was a lot more free form and a lot more free flowing. Um, I, I totally loved radio and, you know, I've, I, I've enjoyed doing podcasts. You know, we do our fantasy live podcast. I've, you know, like you know, hopped on with friends and stuff like that. So I do still miss it. It is still a lot of fun. Um, and I just, I, you know, I feel like I've taken a lot of the stuff I did in radio, uh, and, and applied it to, you know, what I do on television for the network now. Um, you know, I, I spent two years calling minor league baseball games on the radio and did a lot of like high school sports on radio and that sort of stuff. And I do feel like it really, really helped. And it's something that I, when I talk to, you know, when I, people from kids in high school or, or guys in college ask me about, you know, how I got here, I, I really make it a point to say, look, you know, you have opportunities to do things that I didn't have when I was in college. Um, things like YouTube and like podcasts and all these kind of sort of broadcast forms that allow you to get some practice without worrying about making mistakes. I mean, it's hard to go and be in a market and say something dumb and potentially get suspended and or fired. Whereas you can say that on your podcast or on YouTube and sure, maybe people, you know, flame you with a few nasty comments, but it's a chance to get some practice in. And so I, I have been a big advocate of, of doing radio or any kind of broadcast form just to kind of give you that idea and that, that practice of being able to think on your feet and present your ideas, you know, on the fly. Now, it's funny you mentioned play-by-play because that's the one thing that I never did. Um, there just wasn't really an opportunity because the station I worked for, we didn't live broadcast any games. We only did pre- and post-game coverage and spots um, within our other broadcasts. So could you maybe give us a sense of what play-by-play coverage was like? Like how much preparation went into it and what that entire experience was? Because I feel like that would be really interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it is. It's fun. It At the lower level, certainly is not lucrative. So if you're getting into it and looking for a big paycheck, that's you're going to be sorely disappointed. But, yeah, you, you do a lot of prep. I mean, you know, uh, when I was doing baseball, um, I, it, it is a grind. You know, doing the minor league season, it's 140 games a year, and, and you're, you know, you're not necessarily going to the, the greatest cities in America. Um, but you you learn a lot about how to prepare, about how to, you know, prepare not only your stats to, to be able easily readable, to be something you can access when you need to, but also kind of how to tell a story. Because um, especially baseball-wise, there is so much downtime, and you have to be able to kind of carry the broadcast, especially, uh, you know, when I was doing minor league games and I was by myself for nine innings a game, uh, 140 games a year you have to learn how to tell a story and you have to learn how to have plenty of other information. Um, you know, if, if, if I got to, you know, half of what I had prepared for a game, um, that was a lot because hopefully the game was good enough to carry you along. But sometimes, Hey, you need to be able to tell a story about some guy who, you know, cuts hair in the off season because he's not making enough to, you know, survive playing baseball. Um, so that, that definitely was part of it. And, 
Um, it, it's, it, it has kind of helped me now when I prepare for shows, when I'm trying to figure out stats and, and you know, clever ways to present information. Um, I feel like I go back to a lot of what I learned doing baseball or doing high school football and that sort of thing to be able to kind of tell that story, to present that information in a way that people can digest it, but also at the same time have, them, have it be uh, sort of entertaining for them. I think that's really fascinating. I would not want to do minor league baseball by myself. That sounds like <laughs> quite the ordeal. <laughs> you need to have someone to bounce off with. Like it's, I mean, even hosting a podcast, like I interview people pretty much every week. I've been doing it for the past year. Now I've done other interviews before. It's really hard to do this by yourself because you pretty much have to carry the conversation and throw it off to the, whoever the person you're asking a question is. And even that's hard to do. I couldn't imagine doing it for a minor league baseball game for nine innings. That seems really intense. Um, but as someone who went to a lot of small cities in America, I also uh, have I, – I like going to smaller cities and just seeing what they're like or smaller towns. I think um, it's really cool to experience America. I mean, I live in New York right now, but I definitely appreciate the fact that there are places outside of New York. and. What are some of the coolest small cities that you ever visited uh, on your travels as a minor league broadcaster? Um, wow. Uh, you know, I was I was in California mostly. I was in the California League, but I, even as somebody who grew up in California, I saw places that I had never really been to before. I mean, I got to kind of explore uh, Modesto and Bakersfield and, you know, um, I actually had a really fun time in Victorville, which is sort of in the high desert, about uh, you know an hour or so northeast of Los Angeles. Um, and yeah, you see a lot of interesting things. I think for me, the biggest thing wasn't so much the places as it was the people that I met along the way in all these different cities. Whether it's you know people who work in the front offices or just people who work in the ballparks, wherever you go, meeting the players, meeting the coaches. Um, you know, there are still a handful of people that I keep in touch with from my, you know, I, I, my last season of minor league baseball was, uh, 2002, but there are still <laughs> people that I, that I keep in touch with, um, because I just made that connection because you just, you do, you really do meet a lot of really interesting people who are all kind of, they're all, you know, everybody's trying to move up. You know, they, I say the players aren't the only ones trying to move up to the major leagues. I mean, you got people in front offices who are trying to get experience and move up. So you all kind of have some of the, those same goals and you're all kind of dealing with the same headaches of, of working for a small organization, not making a lot of money, trying to do the best you can with it. And so there's kind of that shared experience and, and it's been, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed kind of keeping some of those friendships going uh, all throughout the years. It's just people that, you know, nobody understands your struggle, like the same, like somebody who's going through it with you. And so that, that was always fun to me. That's an awesome perspective. On the flip side of that, are there any people who you either call games for or met in those interactions who ended up making it? Um, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, the guy who originally hired me for my first ever professional play-by-play job uh, was Dave Fleming, who now is on ESPN doing stuff, who's also the voice of, uh, of Stanford Athletics. Uh, he's, a, he's a Stanford alum, and so he was doing Stanford football and basketball for a while, and uh, and Flim shows up on actually Flim is all I'm 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 downplaying downgrading him. Flim is also the voice of the San Francisco Giants. I mean, what am I saying? Uh, you know, he he called games for a three-time world champion club. Uh, so yeah, it's it's kind of been fun to watch him uh, watch him grow and and kind of take off, knowing that he's the guy who hired me for my first gig. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's some other guys who I know who are doing you know some national radio stuff. A guy named Rob Bushka. Uh, who was in Rancho Cucamonga doing single-A ball when I was there. He now uh, hosts a couple of syndicated radio shows. Um, th- those are a couple of guys off the top of my head that I can think of. So it's it's always fun to kind of get together and run into those guys and just talk to them about, you know, where they've been and, and how they got there. That's really funny. Uh, transitioning a bit to talk about, I think the last thing we're going to talk about tonight, um, I know you, you are a fan of various animated shows that I'm also a fan of. So of course. we're going to talk about that. Um, first, I don't remember. Are you a fan of Rick and Morty or no? I love Rick and Morty. Can't wait for season, All right. uh, what, season three, right? Coming soon. Yeah, oh, someday. Soon, right? Someday. Um, All right. Yeah, the, the three shows we're going to talk about are Rick and Morty, BoJack, and Voltron. Um, I guess in general, why do you like those shows? Just really big, but 
just to set the table? Um, you know, I like them because, yeah, you know, as a kid, I remember watching cartoons and loving them, and I feel like um, people kind of of our generation, you know, have because we we grew up on cartoons. I feel like we as a as a generation have kind of taken the things that we loved and have turned them into careers. Um, you know, the fact that you you can make a career out of playing video games now. If you play in tournaments and win money, you can do that. You can, you know, make a career out of watching TV and writing about it more so than in the past. And I think having watched animation sort of grow up and become not just something for kids, become something that, you know, obviously kids can sit down and watch, uh, maybe not Rick and Morty, but you can sit down and watch, but also have it still appeal to their parents. Um, that that holds something for me, and I think there's still a I think it's there's a lot of good storytelling. There's a lot of good not only just comedy, but I think social commentary in a lot of shows. Uh, you know, talking about stuff like South Park or uh, you know whatever. Um, I just feel like that has that has kind of grabbed me. That it it allows me to still be that kid while at the same time having themes that can appeal to me as a grown up. Yeah, those shows make me feel way too many emotions. Like um, Rick and Morty. Just, those guys do such a good job of juxtaposing the absolutely insane with the very emotionally arresting. Like, um, I mean, there are so many different examples. I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched all the shows, but the end of season two, um, that's pretty heavy. That, that was a moment where I had to take a step back. And I know there's some other episodes that really jumped out to me there, too. Uh, I guess on Rick and Morty, like, what is your favorite episode? Um, man, uh, maybe it's cliche, but I mean, Mr. Meeseeks was <laughs> because it was so absurd. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I it just, it, you know, I think it was like the first one that really like caught me and, and, and you know, the whole Mr. Meeseeks trying to help everybody with their problems and, and trying to, you know, teach golf and make people popular and all that sort of thing. Um, I found that just to be completely hilarious and completely absurd, but also kind of speak to the fact that, you know, I mean, I think we all wish we could have somebody that would just pop up and help us be better at something, um, in theory, cost-free. Um, but I, I think overall, I just, I love the dynamic between Rick and Morty. Um, I was a little bit slow on the uptake. Somebody pointed out to me that, Hey, don't you think this is like a back to the future parody? And I was just like blown away because I was slow at, at catching on to that. Um, but the dynamic between Rick and Morty is kind of, um, this nebulous mentor versus protege, uh, relationship they have where, you know, Rick in theory is supposed to be the mentor, but a lot of times it's Morty that is the voice of reason in this whole thing. And that to me, I think is, is very entertaining, but also I think speaks a lot to how age is not necessarily a determinant of maturity or wisdom all the time. I think that's very fair. Um, very important question. And this is a debate that I, I don't think people have totally taken consideration, but I think it's important um, first of all, have you seen the video of Kirk Cousins doing the ooh wee? Yes. Yes. So I think it's pretty obvious that he's imitating someone from Rick and Morty um, when he's doing that. But I don't think it's Mr. Meeseeks. I think it's Mr. Poopy Butthole. Who do you think he's imitating in Rick and Morty when he does that ooh wee? Yeah, I, no, I think you're on to something. Because, yeah, Mr. Meeseeks, I don't think he ever said ooh wee, but I do believe Mr. Poopy Butthole did. Um... So I, I I would tend to side with you in that one. I think you're right. Yeah, for listeners, are actually real characters on a real show. So <laughs> I can say that if I want to. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I think this is a debate that is worth having. And I'm happy you agree with me on that. <laughs> I want to shift over to BoJack, which I watched again today. Or not today. I watched it earlier this week because uh, I didn't have that much to do. And I just wanted to rewatch it. Um, man. What about that show gets you the most? Um, I I have I think it's this the overriding sense of everybody on that show is sort of searching for their own identity, um, and and is dealing. There are a lot of really human emotions on that show, which is sort of funny when you consider that the majority of the characters are animals. 
um, you know, with a few humans sprinkled in. But there was a lot of real human emotions. And, and you know, BoJack obviously being the center of it and sort of dealing with not being a huge star, uh, you know, and then finding his way back into the limelight a little bit, but still trying to, like, make sense of who he is uh, as a quote-unquote person, um, you know, dealing with with uh, isolation and loneliness and, you know, obviously the, you know, the, the drug and alcohol abuse that he's dealing with. Um, I think that that is very, very real to me, um, you know, and as somebody who kind of, you know, I, I, maybe I think a lot of us have kind of dealt with that. I know at times that I have certainly dealt with kind of issues of, of identity and loss and trying to figure out where my place is in the world, um, both from a personal and professional standpoint. Um, that, that really grabs me. That's really real to me. And so, um, I think they've done an excellent job of that. Uh, obviously it's, it certainly helps that it's a very well-written show and it's a very funny show, but, um, I think when it works best, it is those moments where you have some of the key characters trying to grapple with those very human everyday emotions that a lot of us try to maybe suppress or, or don't necessarily always deal with, but understand that are always there. I totally agree, and I know that for me, I, I relate to the characters a lot, um, just the situations they go through, and, and trying to figure out what actually is going to make you happy, and that's what a lot of Season 3 dealt with, is the concept of happiness, and I think as we move into Season 4, um, we're going to figure out what that means, because Bojack, at his core, is someone who was on a sitcom, he's, I guess the corollary that we could draw him to in the human world is like Fred Savage, right? Fred Savage, I thought maybe a little Bob Saget also. Yeah. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways. Actually, I think Saget might be perfect. Um, even though he wears Cosby sweaters, but he's not Bill Cosby. That is for sure. <laughs> um, but, yeah, just he he was a sitcom star um, where it's 30 minutes, everything gets nice and wrapped up at the end, and you're able to just go on with your lives. And I think he's real. he's realized at this point that life is not a sitcom, but... Also, like, the destructive decisions that he's making hurting a lot of people. And the end of Season 3, which, if you haven't watched it, um, I recommend watching the entire show, but specifically Season 3. The final couple of episodes are just, like, crushing. And, I mean, really, since, like, halfway through Season 2, I think BoJack's been one of the best shows on TV. It's just every single episode really has delivered. I mean... We haven't talked about it a lot, but Season 3, Episode 4, um, which has gotten so much press that I don't even feel bad about talking about it in a little bit more detail, even though people should still watch it, um, is this episode that has very little dialogue. And, I mean, the entire episode feels like the movie Lost in Translation with Bill right. Murray. And, I mean, yeah, what did you think about when you saw that? Because that was one of the best episodes of TV I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I think I, if I remember right, I think I went and watched that twice. Like I watched it, and I think I watched it back almost immediately, um, because there was there was so much going on with almost nothing actually said out loud. But um, I think it very much encapsulated BoJack's sort of struggle with finding himself versus you know being. But I, I think the best I think the best way to, to talk about to, to describe it is that. You know, he has really tried to figure out who is BoJack Horseman as opposed to being, you know, BoJack Horseman, the star of Horsin' Around. Um, because I think so much of the character's identity originally is wrapped up in having been the star of this family sitcom for so many years. Now that that's taken away from him, I think he's learning to try to cope. And I feel like that episode really encapsulated his struggle with um, you know, being a celebrity and being famous versus just trying to be an everyday person and interact in a world with other people. And I, I, I think, I think they did such a great job of telling so much of a story without having the characters actually say much of anything. I can't wait for the next season. There's so much that's going to be happening and I'm, I'm just ready for it. I think that Bojack, if the season goes how I think it will, to me, the thing that makes Bojack happiest and this is something that's persistent in every season, is when he can be seen as a father figure. He wants to take care of people, and I just think he needs to figure out how to to do it in a way where it doesn't damage other people. But that that will be the final step. 
I've talked about those shows on this podcast before. We have I have not talked about Voltron before. And I said <laughs> a while ago I wanted to talk about Voltron because um you seem like a bigger fan of like the older stuff than I was. I really just watch it because I love Legend of Korra and Studio Mir is behind Voltron and that art style and the script writing like it just it really appealed to me for Korra, so I thought it would, it would appeal for me to Mir too. I mean, I thought it would appeal for me for Voltron, too. Um, I guess to start, how do you think this compared to old Voltron? Um, I think I think they did it justice. I think it, it held up. And, and I, I remember going back um, when they first announced that they were making a new Voltron. I went back and started watching some of the old episodes, mostly because... One of my best friends and I always had this idea that we would write a Voltron movie. Um, so I started going back to watch some of the old episodes. And I, having watched the, this first season of this new of this new series, um, I feel like they did actually a better job of kind of explaining the mythology and sort of getting the characters up to speed in terms of being able to, you know, find the lions and form the robot and just kind of the the, the struggles of getting the Voltron force together and up and running. Um, I do like the way they sort of updated the characters. I mean, you know, I don't know that you could have done it uh, in that 80s sensibility that the original one was in. I felt like they kind of changed some things and, and really uh, added more of a modern sensibility to it. So I, I really did like that. I I felt like the season ended sort of on a weird note that it just was kind of abrupt. I was waiting for something else to kind of happen. So um, that wasn't great, but in, at the same time, it also sort of, got me interested in what's going to happen next to see where they go with the story. But I, I would say overall, I felt like they, they really were faithful to the spirit of the original series. So I, you know, I, I, I was more pleased with it than not. And part of what you have to remember is that first of all, the show was made for people much younger than us. Unlike Bojack, which I think is for an older crowd and Rick and Morty for that matter as well. The show was made for a younger audience, not super young, but still younger and they had to sell the toys. I mean, that's why they're doing it. They of course. To make the toys. <laughs> I, I rewatched some of the older episodes. The voice acting on those episodes is just so it's bad. Bad. It's bad. Yeah, it's, it's bad. It's hard to get by it. it. It's really hard. And I think overall, I agree with your sentiment. I thought the season ended too quickly. I thought that the season was at its strongest after episode. I want to say episodes one to eight. Um, which I believe is the second part of a two-part episode. I don't want to spoil it in case people watched it, but I think part of the issue is that they didn't change the characters quite enough outside of Pigeon Hunk, who are both the best, I would argue they were the best characters um, in that season because you actually saw a lot of development from the episode to episode and you learned things about them, and they were also just very useful and very capable. And I think that with the other pilots of the Lions, Lance, Shiro, and Keith, uh, there just wasn't a ton of growth, and maybe that'll come in the next couple of seasons, but I just didn't see a lot of differentiation between them. Um, Or if there was differentiation, I just thought it was lazy and kind of um, typical, I guess I would say. I think the best example of that, I mean, yeah. Well, no, I think that's fair. I think I think that especially when you talk about you know Lance and Keith, yeah, um, they were almost interchangeable, <laughs> you know. And I know that they they've tried to kind of create this rivalry between the two of them, but you just never got the sense that they were different enough to actually make that interesting. And maybe that's something they they get to in the second season. But I, I'm I'm sort of with you. I felt like certainly those two, and, and you could throw Shiro in there to a point as well they were all kind of variations on the same theme. Yeah, and then, meanwhile, Pigeon Hunk both, like, had so many growth opportunities, and it, it just became very clear that um, once their growth was finished, and I think that for Pidge it was probably about in season, in episode four, and Hunk, I would say, probably around episode eight, uh, they just really stopped being relevant to the remainder of the story because I think they thought they had to get all of the Shiro backstory in and I don't know. I just didn't find Shiro, Keith, or Lance that likable. And I agree with you on Keith and Lance. Like, yes, they're, bo- they're both very similar 
and they both have very specific traits that are very typical in a lot of anime and manga for certain demographics of heroes. Um, Keith is very, like, honor-driven and duty-bound, and Lance is just, like, a ladies' man and just wants to have sex with everything. Um, (laughs) So, like, I don't know. I mean, Lance had, like, one moment, and Keith had one moment where they flashed something a little bit more than that, but... Maybe I'm asking for too much from a kid's show. I just wanted to see a little bit more. But I'm excited to see what happens in season two. I think that there's a lot of potential. I think Allura also is really um, strong. So I think that that was good as well. But yeah, overall, I'm pretty excited for the what's going to happen next there. I'm I'm intrigued to see what happens. I, I've i heard that some big things happened in the old season two of Voltron. I just don't know what they are. Um, so that should be interesting to see how they deal with those big things. Yeah, no, absolutely. If, if it's if it's what I think it is, yeah, there are there are some some very big changes that happen. So I'm I'm curious if, to see if they if they stick with that in this uh, in this version of the series, or if they decide to kind of branch out and do their own thing and, and kind of create their own uh, you know their own mythology here. But um, like I said, they they did just enough to kind of whet my appetite for a second season. Now I feel like if if the second season kind of has a weird ending or doesn't really go anywhere, that that may be it for me. But I'm certainly willing to give it another shot. Yeah, the first couple episodes don't get me. I'm going to probably back out, and I'll I'll just have to wait for BoJack. Um, or whatever new Avatar project Studio Mir does, because I bet they're going to do something. We'll see. I, I still believe. I, actually, no, I think they're going to do something for Korra, so I'm excited about that. Um, Marcus Grant, thank you. This was awesome. Dude, I appreciate you having me on. Um, I hope hopefully that uh, this lived up to its billing as the you know the end of the year finale here. I, I don't want to let anybody down. Uh, 2016 has been sad enough for a lot of people. I mean, I hopefully I can help boost it up at the end. Yeah, 2016 this week has been tough. It's been a really really bad week. Um, as of this recording, I mean, George Michael passed away. Carrie Fisher passed away. I went on a little rant on Twitter today because Douglas Adams, who wrote Watership Down, Richard Adams, not Douglas Adams. Not Hitchhiker's Guide guy. Richard Adams, who wrote Watership Down, passed away. And that's one of my favorite books. So, yes, very tough week. Very tough year for many. Uh, but I think that this ended on a positive note. And what are you doing for New Year's? Are you just going to hang out in the crib in L.A.? Yeah, I probably won't go much of anywhere. Um, the last couple of years, I actually haven't honestly gone out. I've, I've been kind of a homebody, and I stick around and like watch the Twilight Zone marathon on like sci-fi or something like that. Um, this year I will probably be close to home simply because January 1st is our last fantasy live show of the season. So I'll be up and in early. Um, and then who knows? I actually may, um, I don't know, start my year on a really sad note. Uh, a friend of mine is coming into town and we're talking about possibly going to see Cardinals and Rams at the Coliseum to end the, uh, the season. So, um, you know, there'll be beer. So there's that. I guess things can only get up from there. So start at the bottom <laughs> and then work your way back to the top. Um, I'll be in Florida. I'm going to Florida and I'm very excited. So awesome. I will be enjoying Miami, which will be great. Um, but yeah, yeah until like after a good place to be a pretty good place to be, I need to get out of New York, but it's going to be great. Um, until the new year, thanks for listening. Share the podcast football and more with Ethan Hammerman on Twitter, on Facebook and all your social networks. Subscribe on iTunes, rate it. Um, Happy New Year, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening.